0: If you're able to, would you stand with me and we're going to read Psalm 32 together and then we'll jump in. Psalm 32. I'll read it and after I read it I'll say, this is the word of the Lord and you'll say, thanks be to God. So, Psalm 32, a mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and iniquity. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, though my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Let me pray. Lord, please come and be with us now as we look into your word. Um, Teach us, please, Holy Spirit, not just to understand the text, but to understand the depths of all the greatness of it, um, of what it means to be forgiven by you, and point us to Christ, our only hope, as we look at it, Lord. We love you. We pray this all. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, maybe you can share this experience with me. Maybe you can't. It just depends on uh, how good of a student maybe you were whenever you were younger. But whenever I was a uh, a child, I wasn't necessarily the best student sometimes each year. And I was a public school, South Carolina, um, product of it. So you get what you paid for. So um, (laughs) whenever I was uh, growing up, we had this common experience where report cards had to go out. This was back before the internet, and I don't know how they do it now, but I assume they email it. We didn't have all that. So they just handed it to the students, and we took it, and we looked at our grades, and we're like, oh, like finally saw what I did, and we had to take it home to our house, and our parents would see it, and they had to sign it, like with their actual signature on the report card, and I had to bring it back to the teacher, and she would know that, that my parents had actually seen the grades, uh, and so that was how it was back then. And I remember every time I, I, I figured I had an idea of what my grades were going to be, but my parents never had any idea about what, what my grades were going to be. Cause I was the one that studied and took the test. And so I knew basically where I was going to be. But when I got the report card, that was like the, that was it. Like I knew. Uh, and so, um, the worst part is whenever you made a bad grade and you had to take it home. And all I wanted for that is just to be over. Like I just, I know they're going to get mad. I know they're going to tell me I'm smarter than this and I should do better and I need to start studying harder. And I just wanted to finally get the confession part was bad. But after it went after the confession, the fact that it was over and I felt like, okay, they know, at least they know, I confess to them. And after the speech is over, it's over. And I don't have this like deep abiding guilt or anticipation of waiting for the speech, you know, because it was going to be bad. Um, that's kind of what this sermon is about. Uh, is the the it's not necessarily about confessing to your parents. It's about confessing to God and how great it is to actually confess to God and then to know after you've confessed that it's over and you're forgiven. That's what it's about. Now, uh, there's one other thing that the sermon's basically about is this. Um, depending on whenever you got saved. At a young age or an older age, you're going to be able to pinpoint in some point in your life, especially if you've been a Christian for a long time, the moment whenever finally you understood just how great it was to be forgiven by God. Um, Like I was saved at eight, right? And so, you know, what have I done from age, you know, zero to eight? Not much, right? Uh, And so to know the under and joy of it, you know, it wasn't too great. It was wonderful to know that I wasn't going to go to hell. That I, I felt great about that. Um, but as as I went on in age, uh, and I finally, you know, high school was pretty simple. I was part of a great youth group, and so, you know, there was no temptation. I didn't want to do anything bad, whatever. Um, I went into college at, at USC, and I had a job where I had to work on Sundays. I didn't go to church for at least three years, um, and that that had some bad effects from it, right? So for three years while I was at USC, you know, I didn't live for the Lord the the way I should at all. And then finally, uh, I was a Christian. I just, you know, backslide, whatever you want to say. I don't think I ever lost my salvation. Um, But there's a point where I finally realized what I'm doing right now is not working. And so I need to turn this thing around. This is The trajectory of my life is just mess, right? It's just not going to go well. And I don't want to have, you know, a life that doesn't glorify God. And so there's a moment where I finally woke up and then I transferred colleges. I've talked about this a number of times. And then uh, for the next three years, I decided the Lord was going to uh, call me in, uh, the Lord called me in ministry. But somewhere after I woke up from this stupor of not following the Lord to where uh, I look back on those three years where I didn't walk with him and then I realized at age eight that he had forgiven me, not just of you know, sins from zero to eight, but even knowing that he I, had, I was going to walk in this path up until you know, age 20, from 17 to 20, uh, and he had forgiven me of all that too. Somewhere around 20, 21, age 20, 21, after I had transferred and all of it just kind of hit me at once, you've been forgiven for everything, like in that moment right there, the wonder of being forgiven of sin hit me. And that moment, it's undescribable. It, and we all try to, if you've had it, you try to manufacture like a feeling to go back to what it felt like at that very first time when you're 21. So that you can finally like be on fire for Jesus like you used to be. Uh, sometimes that's an experience we have. But, you know, you go through life and you become a stronger believer and you understand the word and you grow in the word. Uh, And so you you understand a lot more about what it means to be a a follower of Christ. Uh, But sometimes you look back at that and you're like, man, I feel like that's when I really, really knew the Lord. That's like whenever that, that first instance of like the, the full weight of my sin hit me and the unbelievable feeling it gave me to know I'm forgiven of all that. I'm forgiven of all that what this text is trying to get us to do is um, not necessarily try to, if you're not from the 80s, um, but instead to know what it feels like even presently and to revel in and wonder in and find yourself amazed in uh, being forgiven by Jesus today. And so it's a good practice to Remind yourself of just how wonderful it is to be forgiven of all of your sin. That's what this text is about. Now, Psalm 32 has two parts, okay? Verses 1 through 5 is about the joy and the experience of confession and forgiveness. That's what verses 1 through 5 is about. Um, But the second half, when you get to chapter, or verse 6 through 11, it talks about the appropriate responses to being forgiven. So we're going to come to the appropriate responses. But the first thing is verses 1 through 5. And in verses 1 through 5, he's talking about the experience that he felt, like the actual feelings he felt and how he navigated through being forgiven. Uh, And he starts with the best part. So instead of like, I felt really bad, so I confessed on my sin, and then everything was wonderful. He starts with, Everything was wonderful. So he starts with the end in verses 1 and 2. So the condition after, the experience of confession and forgiveness, that's what we're looking at. And he starts with the condition after being forgiven. That's what verses 1 and 2. Then he goes to how bad he felt and what confession was like in verses 3 and 4 and 5. But he starts with the best part, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. So David starts with the end. He starts with the best part. And so he draws us in. This is not just a writing device, but I think that it's I think it's the genius part of it is it's it's difficult to confess sin. So realize that as you walk through that, there's an end in mind. And man, it is glorious and it is wonderful. And so he he expresses to us in verses 1 and 2 the best part. My condition after is I'm blessed, I'm forgiven, I'm covered, and I'm not charged. Where he says counts no, that's not charged. I'm not being charged with it. And so before you get through the difficult parts in verses 3, 4, and 5, David wants you to know it's all worth it. Everything we're going to go through in 3, 4, and 5, that's the tough part. It's worth it. Look at verses 1 and 2 because... You're blessed if you do it. So he starts this psalm with a beatitudinal flavor. If you've read the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, blessed is blessed is blessed. And so he starts with this blessed, and he tells us that there's two people and two ways that we're blessed. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, sin is covered. Blessed is the man in whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And so the one who has their sin forgiven is truly blessed blessed indeed. And he wants us to feel that. And so he says a lot of different words here to give us an understanding. Bless is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Forgiven. Nasa in the Hebrew. I'm going to throw some Hebrew out there in case you want to write them down and you know, type them into Google later and get the fuller if you want. But it's to to lift up and to carry away. This is what it means to be forgiven, is that the weight on you has been lifted up and carried away off of you. And now it's all gone. It's, uh, it's what it means to be forgiven. It's relief from a burden. When sin's on you, it's quite burdensome. And f- being forgiven is the the burden is actually lift off of you. The burden's going to be discussed later when we talk about that, but there is a burden on us and it's completely lifted off of us and it's totally glorious. So blessed is the one whose sin is forgiven and also whose sin is covered. Kasa, this is the uh, hiding of a record. There's a record against us and it's not good. And there's a hiding of it That happens by Jesus whenever he takes our place. And this is what makes it great. So whose sin is covered. This terrible record has been kept against us. You can't escape it. You can't get away from it. And God's not mean because he keeps it. He's God. He has to keep the record. That's who he is. We're supposed to be holy. None of us are. Record's being kept. Now here's the good news. The entire record against us has actually, if you're in Christ, been told. Colossians chapter 2, 13 and 14 when it talks about that, it says it this way, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with them, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And what did he do when he canceled it? It says, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The record was like literally nailed on the cross when Jesus was nailed on the cross for us. And he Put it aside. And now we have this condition where he says our sin is covered. So we've been forgiven. Our transgressions are forgiven. Our sin is covered. And also it says, blessed is the man against his um, counts no iniquity. This hasab is, is not charged. God is not going to hold you liable for your iniquity anymore. It's a total dismissal of debt. You're guilty. I'm guilty. We're all guilty. Bang the gavel down. Dismissed. I mean, I, I, I can go free? <laughs> okay, how does that work? Because Christ took it for you. So this is the condition after. Whenever we, after we realize we've been forgiven, we've been covered, we've been not charged. And it ends up by saying, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Um, those that don't realize that they're a terrible sinner, they will continue to deceive themselves. Make excuses. Think everything's fine. Don't worry about their condition before the Lord. Don't think it's a big deal to have sin against God. All of this is self-deceit. But for those who have been forgiven, in our spirit, we no longer deceive ourselves in that way. We recognize that we're a sinner before the Lord and we confess. And that when that happens, we're forgiven and we're covered and we have nothing against us anymore. That's the condition after being forgiven. Blessed, forgiven, covered, not charged. That sounds... Really good. And so he starts with that. And so he tells us, that's your condition before, I mean after. And then he moves into verses 3 and 4 and tells us what our condition is beforehand. Now this is common to all men who have been forgiven of their sin. Uh, And some even common if they haven't been forgiven yet. And so if you're not in Christ and this is your condition right now, well, trust in Christ and be forgiven. But this is the common condition for all men. In verses 3 and 4. So the condition before forgiven. You can put up B. Condition before being forgiven. Distress, misery, weariness. Verses 3 and 4 tells us what that is. For when I kept silent. The keeping silent is the time of silence. Of un- in whenever you're in unconfessed sin. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Is that not just an unbelievable description of how it feels whenever you're walking in sin and you know you're walking in sin and the weight of it's just wearing on you and wearing on you and wearing on you. My bones feel like they're wasting away. Though my, through my groaning all day long for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And so we have this time of silence where unconfessed sin has happened. This is an experience that we all have. And we all know what it's like to harbor unconfessed sin. And it causes distress. It causes weariness. David says that his bones are wear, wearing away. And all this effect of all that guilt is against him, where it causes in three b, says he has groaning all day long. There's also day and night is heavy was upon me. I mean, this is almost like insomnia because you're feeling constant conviction day and night. There's not a moment where you're, Able to escape the heavy hand or the weightiness of your convi- conviction from the Holy Spirit. And then it says, my strength was dried up. This is draining fatigue. So we have weariness and conviction and fatigue and misery and distress. Because of sin weighing us down. If this is you, even right now, you know this is your condition. Then, um, and you have unconfessed sin before the Lord. And you've never confessed it. Why are you waiting? What are you waiting for? Do it now. Even if you're a believer and you have ongoing sin that you have not confessed, then don't live in distress and weariness. Confess your sin to the Lord. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If this is true, what are we waiting on? Confess your sin before the Lord. Don't let your bones Waste away. Why would you do that? And if you want to hear and realize something um, that you might not know, if you feel any of this, God is at work in your life right now. So come to Christ. Receive forgiveness that he offers to you right now. He gave his life for us on the cross for our behalf. And all of us were sinners and all of us needed to be forgiven. And Jesus died on the cross for us providing the payment that every single one of us needed in order to be right before the Lord. So if you come to Christ, um, you can receive forgiveness. Now here's, here's the best part, I think. Um, when you come to Christ, if and when you've already come to Christ... Even if you do it, realize that it was God that actually did it for you. When we read in uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. So, even in these moments, if you're feeling like, yes, I need to confess, yes, I need to repent, I'm going to do it, realize that even the catalyst behind that, the reason why you're doing it, is because a sovereign God is showing you kindness. To even help you recognize that you're a sinner, which will lead you to repentance. Um, And so, His grace is present in all of it. Not just to wake us up, but even to forgive us. His grace is in all of it. Dale Ralph Davis says, God refuses to allow you to be comfortable and happy in your sin. There is mercy in your misery, because He refuses to allow you to stay there. You should... Come to Christ. Now you might ask, okay, if I'm going to do that, what do I say and do? You've, you, you've shown me in verses 3 and 4 how it feels to be unforgiven. I can't stand how it feels to be wasting away in sin. I see that if I get forgiven, then I'm blessed. I've I'm, I'm, I'm got my sin covered. I'm, there's no charge against me. All my transgressions are forgiven. So what do I say and do? What do I, what do I actually do? That's what verse 5 tells us. This is our condition during being forgiven. Which is a little bit weird, but you could say, instead of condition, you could also say like actions. Actions during being forgiven. And it's acknowledgement, it's honesty, and it's confession. And every one of those are hard. Just the first one, acknowledgement alone, can be quite difficult. I acknowledged my sin to you. Have you ever met somebody that's so hard-hearted that they won't even acknowledge it? Like, nope, I'm not I've got nothing wrong. I have, because we all know ourselves, right? We all know ourselves. I, I don't even know what you're talking about. That's not me, I didn't do that. I've said that quite often. We must actually acknowledge and recognize it, realize it, see it, know it. Acknowledgement can actually be to candy coat it. We don't need to downplay it. We don't need to make it sound as bad as it's not. I've heard sin described in somebody got a text. I've heard it I've heard it acknowledged or sin uh, described in a lot of kind of like uh, poorly worded, soft peddled ways of bad habits or just personal hang-ups or things like that. That's not that's not what sin is. Um, that's barely scratching the surface on what we're talking about here. And so Whenever we say acknowledge, I don't want us to acknowledge in a halfway manner about what we're saying. The Bible right here is very clear in what we're acknowledging. And so I want to make sure we can see it. Now, if you notice here in verse 1, it says transgression is forgiven. Sin is covered. And we don't have our iniquity counted against us. That's what it says in verse 1. And if you go to verse 5, it says he didn't... uh, I did not cover my iniquity. Uh, I acknowledge my sin to you and I will confess my transgression. And so in verse 1 and verse 5, those three words are used. And so I want to make sure we can get into a little bit of word study so we can understand what transgression, iniquity, and sin actually are. So that when we're confessing, we're not confessing just bad habits or personal hang-ups or just bad decisions to God. That's That's not what we're confessing. So we're not going to candy coat it. Notice the words he uses, sin, hata. This is missing the mark. What does that mean? So most commonly in the Bible, like 600 times in the Old Testament, it's in its most basic sense, it means to miss the mark. And, you know, the, the way is like you got the archer and there's the thing. And I shoot. If I hit right in the middle, that's perfect. If I hit anywhere else, I miss the mark. And if I hit anywhere else, I've sinned. Because we're supposed to aim right in the middle for the glory of God. And if I don't hit the glory of God in this action, in this thought, and in this, in this everything I'm doing, the glory of God is my centerpiece of what I'm supposed to aim for. And if I miss it at all, I've sinned. Well, that's, that's, that's what it's, in its basic sense, what it's talking about. Or... Uh, Another way is, uh, think of basketball. If somebody shoots the, the basketball, and when they shoot it, if they don't even hit the rim, and it just totally misses everything, the whole place appropriately screams to the Clemson play- I mean, opposing player, airball, airball. I'm just kidding if you're a Clemson fan. Airball, right? Um, This is what sin is. It's the the big air ball when shooting for the glory of God. Now, that's kind of downplaying it, making it not sound as serious, but it's much more serious. It's no small matter of all. We're all supposed to live an actual, complete, perfect life in order to be with Jesus. And so sin is missing the mark of the glory of God in everything that we do. We are supposed to hit square bullseye The glory of God in every single thing, every single thought, every single action that we do or we sin. That's how wretchedly sinful we are. We don't think of it like I just kind of messed up a little bit. I sinned a little bit. If you don't hit in the middle of the glory of God in every action thought, then you've you've sinned because you didn't go for the glory of God. That's what sin is. We also have iniquity. So we we have our sin covered, but we also need to have not to be charged against our iniquity or have our iniquity forgiven. Iniquity, awan, it means being twisted or crooked. This is what iniquity is. It's a perversion and a distortion of what is truly to be. We are truly to be one way, but if we have iniquity, we're, we're twisted or crooked or perverted or distorted. Think of it this way. Take one of those old school clothes hangers from, you know, the place where you, not the plastic ones that always break, not the wire ones, you know, the one you have to break in cars with when you lock your keys in your car. Um, done that a lot. So get one of those and take it and start bending it all over the place. Just, you know, unwrap it and bend it, bend it all over the place. And then after you've completely bent it up, put it back the exact way that it looked like when you got it from the, from the uh, la- laundry cleaners or whatever they're called. Um, Use every tool you can. Use every plier you can. But whenever you put it back, it has to be the exact way it came from the cleaners. If you ever try that, maybe you never tried it, it's completely impossible. You will never be able to ever get it back to the way it's supposed to look. That's iniquity. Hopelessly wrenched and twisted in a perverted state of what you're actually supposed to be. This is every one of us. We're all filled with iniquity hopelessly crooked and twisted and a perversion and a distortion of what we're supposed to be. Human-wise, human-wise, irreparably damaged. So we're sinners filled with iniquity and we have transgression. Pesah. This is active rebellion. Our hearts are actively rebellious. Refusing subjugation to the rightful authority. We hate having to be subject to God. It's a spiritual revolt. God is our rightful authority and we have rebelled completely against him in our sin. So we are missing the mark as sinners, twisted in our iniquity and rebellious in our transgression. This is an illustration is if you've ever been around a child uh, and while you've been around them and an adult tells them what to do, uh, they're not their child, right? They're just an adult talking to a child. But generally adults talking to children, it, telling them something to do to keep them from harm is a good thing. And the child looks up at them, the four-year-old looks at them and says, You're not the boss of me. You ever been around that? If my children do that to you, please let me know. Um, but this is the same thing whenever we look at God in a transgression. We confidently look up him like at a four-year-old, like a four-year-old and say arrogantly, You're not the boss of me. That is transgression. That's rebellion. Now, we must acknowledge that this is what we've actually done against God. Sin filled with iniquity and transgressed against the Lord. Why would we take time to review the words in that depth? Because this world, and some even in Christianity, have I said, have not done a good job at explaining how wicked our condition is before the God. Before God. Um, we've heard the offer of the gospel to take care of our hurts and our mistakes and our bad habits and our hang-ups and our personal bad choices. And that's true. It's not all-encompassing. It's not even close to the full understanding of sinfulness before a holy God. Calvin states it this way. He who feels not his disease truly refuses the remedy. If we don't understand just how sinful we are, then we don't we we won't either acknowledge Christ we'll refuse Jesus or we don't understand how great it is to be forgiven by Jesus. Jesus didn't die because we have bad habits. Jesus died because we're wicked, twisted rebels that have not hit the mark of God's glory. That's the greatness about being forgiven. Is all of that terrible description of who we are all of it is completely forgiven and not just brought to some kind of neutral place, but then restored fully into the image of Christ as the way that we're supposed to be. Knowing what we've done makes us treasure verses one and two even more. Knowing that we're sinners who are Filled with iniquity, who are rebellious at heart, makes us understand when verses 1 and 2 better. Now, we've gone through that who we are. Blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven. Your rebellion has been forgiven. You're blessed. Blessed is the man whose sin, missing the mark, is covered. Blessed is the man against who the Lord counts no iniquity. All of our wicked and crooked and twistedness of who we're truly supposed to be has been not counted against us. Knowing that relief of all this burden, hiding of all of our record or iniquity, and dismissal of our rebellious debt, knowing what we've been actually forgiven from, makes us treasure Jesus even more. Your life, whenever the full weight and wonder of what has actually been given to you in Christ when the forgiveness has happened, And that's what the psalm is trying to help us understand. As I said, Roth Davis, he says it this way, Unless you realize that sin is not some semi-naughty act, but instead a multifaceted, complex, octopus-like monster that has you, you must see the treason of sin, the failure of sin, the twistedness of sin, the duplicity of sin. You must see that you are in revolt against the only true king, continually missing the mark of what he requires, having a twisted, perverse nature that excels in covering up the cancer, then forgiveness will never mean squat to you. I love his words. I, like, I love how he talks. So if we're going to be distressed and weary, it needs to be over our sin and over our iniquity and over our transgressions. Then we're on the proper road towards repentance because we would truly understand what real forgiveness, like David describes here. The Lord has actually forgiven us. That is acknowledgement. Acknowledge, truly how sinful we are. But then there's honesty. Verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. He didn't cover it. Blesses is the man whose sin is covered by God. And he does not do that. He's honest to himself and to God. When he says, I did not cover my iniquity. He didn't try to seek absolution on his own. Because that's impossible. But he also didn't just like. He was honest enough to say, this is truly who I am. He didn't just say, this is who I am. He said, this is who I am. He was completely honest. When we uh, uncover our sin, then God covers our sin. But when we cover it up, then it actually remains uncovered, which is not what we want. we want. We can try to downplay it, try to make it not sound as bad. And that deceitful practice is deadly. We need to be honest. And lastly, it's confession. Confession is necessary. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover up my sin. And I said, I will Confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. But we have to confess. Confession is absolutely necessary. Confession alone does not convey forgiveness. Forgiveness has to be from the one who's been wrong. So we have to confess, but in order to be forgiven, the one we confess to has to actually absolve or extend forgiveness back to us. So confession, confession to whom? Confession to God. And so let's be clear. Honesty, acknowledgement, confession are needed, but none of those actually save. The one who's been wronged has to actually grant absolution to us in order for us to be forgiven. Which means you should want, you sh- there has to be within you, a desire for the one you've wronged to be right with them. If you have no desire to be right with God, you'll never acknowledge, you'll never confess, you'll never be honest. So here's the question maybe that, that I'm begging is if one doesn't know God, why should they care to have a right relationship with God? Why should they care if they don't have a right relationship with Him? Well, thinking this way, uh, if you're not a Christian, is, I think, important. And so I want to answer that. If you don't know God, you don't know how great and how wonderful He is, you might not care to be a right relationship with Him. So I can think of at least four reasons Um, of why you should care. And you could come up with 25 billion more. Um, First is that he created you and he made you in his image and he loves you more than you could ever imagine, far more than you actually love you in his image. Number two, he knows you better than you know yourself. Uh, Whenever you're not being honest with yourself, he knows that and he knows why. And so we should want to know the one that knows us better than we know ourselves. We should want to know that one. Next, those that are or will be finally in the family of God, those that will become believers, he actually chose you to be in the family of God before the foundations To know him because he's already chosen you to be in the family of God before the foundations of the world were even set. If that's the case, well, yeah, I definitely want to know him. This is amazing and should cause us to want to be reconciled with God. And lastly, and I could go on and on and on and on. You should care that he loves you because he gave his only son to die for you. He has a son that he did not have to give to die, and yet he did. And so you should want to know the person that would be willing to give his own son so that you could die. I want to know someone that would do that for me, not just meet him? Like, oh, you gave your son to die for me. I'd like to meet you and shake your hand. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm talking about, right? If someone did that for me, I don't want to just meet them. I want to know them. Those are at least four reasons of why you want to know the one who who's, uh, you've sinned against. And David feels the weight and the wonder of this. He knows how unbelievable it is to be cared for and known by God and to be forgiven. And he writes in this text with emphasis. He says, um, I acknowledge my sin. I didn't cover up my iniquity. And I said I'll confess my sins to the Lord. And then right here, watch this. You see where it says, and you, if you want to, feel free to do this. You should if you want because it's okay to write in your Bible. Right there where the word you is, put a comma and then write another you. Because in the Hebrew, it's twice. And you, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Double emphasis. When writers do this, it's because they're wanting to put, they're wanting you to like, I'm writing this for an emphasis. You, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Double you there and our English text is not there because David is thrilled to be forgiven by Yahweh. You forgave me, God. You're the one that did it. And so this emphasis is pushing us to see that David is absolutely thrilled to be forgiven by Yahweh. One pastor tells a story illustrating the joy of being forgiven. He says it this way. There was a prison warden, Uh, that loved to tell this story. Uh, This prison warden was riding, uh, involved a friend of this warden who was once on a train and he noticed uh, the fellow sitting there next to him who was very low uh, and as he was feeling really down, his young companion confessed that he was just released as a convict from a distant penitentiary and his whole life, He had cast a shadow over his family. His criminal record had heaped shame on them. uh, And he had lost almost all contact with his family. And he couldn't help hoping against hope, however, uh, he couldn't help hoping against hope, however, that the almost total silence of many years meant that they were too poor or maybe just too illiterate to write to him while he was in prison because he hadn't heard from them in such a long time. And so he said before his prison sentence was up, His plan was to find out how they felt. So uh, it wouldn't be too hard for them because they had no money. So he wrote a letter home uh, like a month or so before he left prison explaining to them that he would be on this train passing their little farm on the outskirts of town. And if they could forgive him, then what he wanted to do is for them to, to hang a white ribbon on the old apple tree near the tracks. And... If it was not hanging there when the train went by, he wouldn't ever bother him again because of everything he'd done. As the train approached the familiar haunts of his childhood, the suspense was more than he could take. He exchanged seats with his companion and asked him to watch and report the result to him. In a minute, the tree was in sight and his companion's eyes filled with tears. He placed his hand on the young man's knee and in a hoarse whisper, he said, it's all right. The whole tree is white with ribbons. You should feel the thrill and relief of Yahweh's forgiveness in this way. The weight and wonder of being forgiven by God is infinitely greater than that. It's infinitely greater. And we should want to feel the greatness of being forgiven by God. That's verses one through five, the experiencing and confession of forgiveness. It should fill you with absolute weight and wonder. Wow, he's forgiven me. Responses to the offer of the forgiveness of God. That's the second half of the psalm. So part two, three appropriate responses to the offer of the forgiveness of God. They're all pretty simple. Verse six and seven is the first one. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely the rush of great waters, um, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me; you preserve me from trouble. You surround me with great shouts of deliverance. So, first appropriate response is a call to prayer. We should offer prayers unto the Lord for those that are not believers. When it says in the great rush of many waters or the flood of many waters, meaning it's difficult for you in the whirlpools of death around you um, to do this, and they shall they shall. Likely swallow you one day and you shall not reach him. Like, if you stay in that, if you're an unbeliever and you don't ever want to be forgiven, then the the whirlpools of life will make it difficult for you to reach. But for those that are believers, when it says, therefore, everyone who is godly, this is literally a covenant one. Everyone who is an actual covenant one, you've been called by the Lord to be a covenant child of his, you're able to offer these prayers. And the Lord can be found by you. And so for those that have been forgiven, the first appropriate response is to offer prayers to the Lord. To not just meet God, but know God through prayer. And there are three great, amazing reasons to do this. Because he tells us in verse 7, as going when you go to the Lord as um, your father in prayer... You'll discover number one that he's your hiding place. He's our hiding place. Calvin says there is no other haven for safety but in God Himself. Go to the Lord in prayer because He is your hiding place. Also, He's your place of preservation. You preserve me from trouble. Go to the Lord in prayer because it's God who actually keeps you. Prayer r- reminds you of this. He's the one that is the uh, one that will preserve you. This is actually in the future tense by the way, is pointing us to heaven with him forever. He's the one that is preserving you always and has prepared a place in heaven for you to preserve you. Go to the Lord in prayer and realize not only that he is a hiding place and the place of preservation, but he's also a deliverer. As it says, you surround me with shouts of deliverance. Whatever adversity comes toward you, he is persuaded that God will be his deliverer. That's because God has already delivered him from the most important thing in the world. His sin. So what in the world, if, if God has delivered you from the biggest thing in your life, what in the world else is there that God couldn't handle? Nothing. What's bigger than that? Nothing. But more. There's a second call, um, or second appropriate response. is a call to instruction. Call to instruction. Verse 8 and 9 I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. This is David talking to us. Some, some say that this is actually like God's entering into first person here and God's saying this. Uh, I don't know if that's the case. I think it's David. I think it's David. Um, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I'll count you with my eye upon you. Be not like the horse or the mule without understanding, which may carry, which must be curred with bitten bridle, or it will not stay near to you. So, um, David, I think, is actually speaking here in confidence. It's not a commentator taking the first, the first person of God. I think it's David, because he can uh, speak with such confidence and exude such confidence because he's been forgiven of a sin and he's rejoicing greatly in being forgiven. So, for those that have been forgiven, um, when it says a call to instruction, just think of it this way. All right, if you have been forgiven by God of your sin. Like David, you can exude confidence in Christ knowing that you've been forgiven. Not arrogant, not haughty, stay humble, God's forgive me, I can do whatever I want now. That's not what I mean. I'm saying walk forward in your life confidence with confidence that you've been forgiven. Piper calls it gutsy guilt. Like I'm going to walk forward in gutsy guilt knowing that I, I am guilty, but I can be gutsy because actually he's forgiven me. And so exude the confidence and walk forward and literally instruct others in the way that they should go. Follow me as I follow Christ, as Paul would say it. It's a call to instruction. Not just that you would be instructed by God, of course, that's, that's obvious. It's that you would take the mantle or the, the, the command to instruct others. Call to prayer If you're forgiven by God, it's a call for you to be the kind of person that would instruct others, not to be instructed by just God alone. Jesus has commanded us to go make disciples and reach the nations. So walk forward in that command confidently. Go instruct others. Don't be like the horse and mule. They only obey you if you put the bit in the bridle and lead them around. They're stubborn. Don't be stubborn like the mule. Confess your sin and walk forward in the call to instruction. Have a soft heart and walk forward and teach others. And lastly, and maybe the most important, because um, Christians should be the happiest people in the world. When non-Christians are happy, that's fine, but they should never uh, out-happy us (laughs) because there's no reason for them to ever out-happy us. We've got the best news in the world. So number three, call to rejoice. Call to rejoice. Many of the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. I just, this is a question don't answer out loud. Have you ever ever in your life actually shouted for joy because you're upright in heart? And I don't just mean like, you know, silently shouted. I mean actually shouted for joy at some point where you just scream at the top of your lungs, you know, I'm, I'm forgiven by God and you, you can't get over it because you're, you're upright in heart. Have you ever just like been so overwhelmed with that that you've actually screamed out loud for joy? Now, I've screamed out loud for joy when the Gamecocks win. And so... How how much more should I shout and scream? Like way more, way more. And so be glad and rejoice in the Lord. There's a call to rejoice. Nonbelievers, they should never out-happy us or never out-joy us. Two reasons to rejoice in this text. Two reasons to rejoice. Verse 10, steadfast love surrounds us. Many of the joys of us are the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the ones who trust in the Lord. Steadfast love surrounds you. Those are amazing words. Those that trust in God have the steadfast love surrounding them. Calvin says it this way. The sum is this, that there is no other remedy for our afflictions but to humble ourselves under God's hand and to be found in our salvation on his mercy alone and that those who rely on God shall be blessed in all respects because on whatever side Satan assaults them, there their Lord will be there to oppose him and shield them with all of his protecting power. Steadfast love surrounds us. Great reason to rejoice. Not only does... Number two, the second reason to rejoice is right there in verse 11. Not only does steadfast love surround us, but shout for joy because you are upright in heart. We have been declared by God to be upright in heart. The terrible past of verses three and four, not true anymore if you're in Christ. All of it's gone. That's just the rearview mirror. God's heavy hand was on us, our bones were wasting away, but not anymore. Now, praise Jesus, He has declared us to be upright in heart. That's that's a great reason to sing and shout and celebrate and rejoice because his steadfast love surrounds us and we are actually forgiven of our sin and declared upright in heart. So, how does Psalm 32 point us to Jesus? Like the whole thing. There's no other way to say it. The whole thing. Verses three and four we were wretched sinners. Verse five God, in his kindness, led us to repentance and brought us into that, like verse 5, and now verse 1 and 2, in Christ alone we can have all of our transgressions and all of our forgiven, all of our sin covered, and all of our iniquity not counted against us because Jesus Christ gave his life for us. And now we have great reason to sing and celebrate and worship and rejoice because he has said, you are upright in in heart, and I totally surround you and keep you. Jesus is all over Psalm 32. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, your love, your mercy that you've given to us. I pray that you would be with us now as we continue in worship through song, through your table. And God, we, uh, we ask that you would cause us to be joyous people that never, ever, ever, ever get over the cross. Never, ever, ever get over being forgiven. If there's anybody here that doesn't know you, Lord, that you would save them right now. You would help them see they're a sinner. And they would confess to you their sin and become a believer right now. And for those that are, Lord, that we would rejoice. We would pray, God, that we would rejoice and want to follow in the call to instruct others. We love you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.